Welcome to episode three of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Raisa, and joining me as always is my co-host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Adina Davidson. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive into sort of the other part of this story. It always feels weird to have something unfinished. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't think we're ever going to finish any of these fairy tales. There's always going to be more we could do with them. <laughs> That's true. Very much like an artist's work. Mm-hmm. Or, or a dream when you're working through a dream. There's mm-hmm. always, always another layer you could explore. Of course. And, yeah, we're referring to last episode where we read the Cinderella story by Brothers Grimm. And we discussed the first of two major themes, the healing power of grief. This is part two of our Cinderella coverage. So if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen. That's where we have the full reading of that story. And this is the second major theme, which is the dehumanizing power of envy. So. If some of you are a little rusty on that story, we're going to do a quick refresher. And yeah, I'm going to dive right in here. Cinderella begins with a mother dying and the mother's loving promise to always watch over Cinderella even after death. Once her mother is gone, her father remarries to a cold-hearted classic evil stepmother. And her stepmother and stepsisters treat her as a slave. The father goes to the market one day and asks all of his daughters what they would like and he brings back for the stepsisters some material things but cinderella wants the first branch to strike his hat which he then plants on her mother's grave and it blooms into a tree from this point on the father is barely heard from whilst cinderella's stepfamily put her through all sorts of hardships a ball is announced to find the prince a wife and although cinderella wishes to attend and everyone is invited Her stepmother doesn't allow it even after she completes these impossible tasks that are assigned to her. And she does this with the aid of some magical birds that nested in the tree she planted on her mother's grave. Finally, Cinderella begs to the tree more directly to attend the ball, and she is outfitted by the birds in successively more grand dresses and shoes to attend each night. On the third night, the prince grows wise that she disappears every time and lays a trap for her with pitch out on the steps and these catch one of her slippers. At this point, the hunt is on as the prince scours the kingdom for the lady whose foot can fit into the slipper and Cinderella's stepsisters try to cheat the system by cutting off parts of their feet to make their feet fit, but they're both caught. Finally, the prince insists on letting Cinderella try on the slipper And the truth is out. She's brought back to the palace to marry him. And at the wedding, the stepsister is now trying to ingratiate themselves with Cinderella now that she has this elevated status. They have their eyes pecked out by the birds that had 
been helping Cinderella throughout the story. And interestingly, there is nothing said at the end about happily ever after, only that the sisters got their comeuppance. So one of the ways this story can be seen is a description of what happens to the envious as well as the envied. And certainly in the Grimm version, it seems that that is, in a lot of ways, the main point. You know, both the stepsisters have this horrible fate of being blinded by the birds. Uh, curiously, nothing f to the, the stepmother that was kind of, in some ways, more responsible. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, suffering as a result of envy here. So one of the places that we can see that happening is in this ball that the prince has decided to have to search for his perfect wife. Everyone in the kingdom is supposed to be invited. But the stepmother, because she is so envious of Cinderella, and we really don't know from the Grimm's tale what it is about Cinderella that's incited this envy. It, it doesn't seem to be anything, really, which I think is often the case in life. It's baffling as to why somebody is so envious of someone else. But out of this envy, the stepmother says Cinderella cannot go. She's dirty and has no clothes. This is a classic blame the victim moment. It's the stepmother who took away Cinderella's nice clothes. It's the stepmother who forced her to live in a way that leaves her filthy. And yet Cinderella is blamed and punished because she doesn't have nice clothes and she's dirty. Yeah, there's a lot of other examples even today with blaming the victim in pretty much every state except one specific area. It's illegal to have prostitution. And yet the people who get penalized the most are generally the prostitutes themselves, not the customers, even though there's a crime on both sides. It's the one side that gets punished more. And it's really the prostitutes who are the victims of the sex trade, right? It's you, they usually make very little money. They're managed by abusive pimps. And the Johns, the purchasers, have much more power in the system. And yes, even though they've committed a crime, they're almost never punished. And I, I will preface here that there are systems in which I think the prostitute or, or sex worker, I think would be the official term, can have power. It's a lot easier to do that when it is legal. And we're not going to comment in any way here on, on that. But in terms of the situations where they are very much a victim, this is how it often plays out. Other examples of blame the victim are the bail system and also Jews in Europe. You can elaborate more on that. Yeah. So historically, Jews were very much the other in Europe. Basically, there were Jews and gypsies and then whoever was the main inhabitant of the country. Jews and gypsies were the only minorities. And Jews were prohibited from owning land or being part of any of the guilds. So they essentially had no way of earning a living. 
And in the Christian Bible, money lending is seen as a sin in a lot of ways. It's a negative thing to, to earn interest, but it was one of the only ways that Jews could earn a living. It was one of the few avenues for work that was open to Jews. And therefore, many Jews went into money lending. They became bankers. And then they were blamed for being greedy. There's, I mean, there's still stereotypes about Jews being greedy, money hungry, etc. So I think, again, that's kind of a classic blame the victim pattern. Yeah. I would also say that not only do we see this in these sorts of external persecutions, but one of the reasons that it's in a fairy tale is that it's an internal pattern as well. When we are victimized, we often blame ourselves. If somebody experiences a trauma in their life, one of the most classic telltale signals that there's been a trauma is that they blame themselves. Somehow, if we are victimized, we find the way that we are at fault. And it's almost ingrained in a lot of ways. People like, oh, she was asking for it. When it should be so clear who is the victim in a sexual harassment case. And yet we find ways of grooming women to believe, oh, well, it's somehow my fault. And then there's this embarrassment to go out and share your story, often because you know people are going to put certain elements on you, even though it, it should be clear that you're the one who is the victim. Right. And, and I think perhaps archetypally, because it seems so universal, when we experience a trauma or a victimization, we feel shame. It's as if we're at fault rather than the person who is the aggressor. And Yulinov, in a book called Cinderella and Her Sisters, The Envied and the Envying, argues that Cinderella is fundamentally a tale about envy. She says, and this is a direct quote from the book, unimpeded envy would eviscerate everyone and everything, leaving nothing but shells. Envy seeks to annihilate anything that is good. And the more unconscious the envy is, the more powerful. So it's sort of, you don't even realize that you're doing this thing out of envy. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So what happens is that when we envy somebody, we actually see them as being bad or evil or needing to be taken down a notch. We don't see that it's our envy. We see they're doing something wrong. And in the Cinderella tale, for example, Cinderella's stepsisters are extremely envious of her. And all of their energy goes into trying to destroy Cinderella rather than developing themselves, rather than going, how can I become more? How can I become more whole, more interesting? How can I become more beautiful? If that's, you know, that seems to be one of the big goals of this fairy tale is to be beautiful. How can I be more 
spiritually attuned, which again is something that Cinderella seems to have. Cinderella is both beautiful and spiritual, right? She's in the story. She's both a very beautiful girl and, but she's also a very religious girl. And all the stepsisters can see is how do we destroy that in Cinderella rather than taking all of that work that they go into put into destroying Cinderella and kind of withdrawing the projection as Jungians say and saying, well, what can I find in myself to develop? Yeah. I get the sense very much that the stepsister is maybe envious that Cinderella had this fantastic loving relationship with her mother because clearly their own mother is very much into herself, willing to tell her daughters to cut off parts of their feet just so that she can get the whole group of them elevated into higher status. And probably the mother is envious in, in this sense of Cinderella's supposed to be very pure of heart. Mm -hmm. That, oh, you think you're better than me kind of thing. Always being so good. I mean, I think that's exactly right, right? So I think that's exactly the envious stance is, oh, you think you're so good. When there's no evidence that Cinderella thought anything. Cinderella just was this very lovely, gentle, kind human being. And the stepmother and the stepsisters distorted that into thinking that Cinderella was trying to put them down just, just by existing. Mm -hmm. So Yulanov goes on to say, if we can become conscious of our own envy, so instead of saying, oh, you think you're all that, right? But we can say, oh, I'm feeling really envious. And if we can sort of suffer that envy, if we can feel the discomfort of it, Rather than denying it, envy itself can become a vehicle for our own healing because it can point to what needs repair in our psyche. So if Cinderella's stepmother was envious because Cinderella was so good and kind and lovely, clearly being good and kind was actually something that needed to be repaired in the stepmother. And had she been able to notice that, this could have been a very different story, although probably a less interesting fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, we see Cinderella, who's lost her mother, and she's being tormented by the one who is supposed to care for her. Her stepmother, who's supposed to come in and fulfill the caring, nurturing role of the mother, has become her tormentor. And Cinderella is sitting in the ashes. This seems to me to be an archetypal image of powerless misery. This completely vulnerable child who has had everything, even her bed, taken away from her by cruel, heartless people who are supposed to be the ones who are protecting her. And yet, in the story, she's filled with this sort of inner nobility this grace. And even in this state of destitution, she's still envied. Yeah. And it's sort of unbelievable to the stepmother as well, I think, when she wants to dissuade Cinderella from going to the ball 
she gives her impossible tasks rather than just telling her outright, which is kind of curious almost. One would think that the way she has treated Cinderella up to this point, that she might be fine with just saying, hey, I'm not going to let you go. I don't know. It almost seems like let her down easy kind of thing. Or I guess maybe not let her down easy, but trying to paint herself as a, a better image of the stepmother by trying to say, oh, well, oh, I would let you go, but you have to do this first. And it keeps failing. Right. It's almost as if the stepmother is trying to experience herself as being reasonable. Mm-hmm. Oh, if she just does this task, then she can go to the ball. But the envy is actually too powerful for even that. So that when Cinderella does the task, the stepmother can't tolerate letting her go to the ball and still refuses it. And I think this kind of leads us into the question, what is it to be the person who is envied? What is Cinderella's experience and therefore archetypally our own experience when we are envied? And as this fairy tale shows, it's an attack on our very existence. Being the object of envy is to be the object of annihilatory rage. The person wants you to stop existing. They want your very humanness to be obliterated. And we can see in this story that Cinderella is dehumanized by being made dirty and ragged and then being blamed for being dirty and ragged. She is hard to see as a human being when she is nothing but a slave girl sleeping in the ashes. When that happens to us, when we experience this annihilatory envy, we're going to respond with hurt, with fear, with shock and anger. And it seems like, oh, the person who is envying us, they'll see how much they're hurting us, how much they're scaring us, and that'll make a difference. But it doesn't. It makes no difference at all to the person who is envious. The step family is profoundly indifferent to Cinderella's suffering. She's an object to them, a thing, a receptacle of their projection of idealization that thus deserves persecution. In their eyes, she's too perfect to live and must be destroyed. Yeah, and I think something that many of us find perhaps impressive and also how could this be is the fact that Cinderella doesn't seem to express any of that anger. You're sure it's there, right? But mm. she's always obedient, always does what they say, just goes along with it. And... Her father goes along with it, too, and, and becomes complicit at the end, even saying, oh, we have this kitchen wench, not even. Right. It's as if this dehumanization has been so thorough that even her own father can no longer see her as his child. She's just the dirty kitchen wench. And that always seems like a particularly tragic moment in the story to me. She's no allies. Or no human allies. No living human allies. Right. 
Right. That's right. She has her mother and she has the birds and the tree. And I wonder if actually you said that Cinderella never shows any of the anger, but the birds do it for her. Mm. The story ends with the stepsister's eyes being pecked out. It is a very rageful (laughs) ending for a fairy tale about a wedding. Yeah. So, yeah, I almost wonder if because of when Cinderella was written, women really weren't allowed to have agency over our own anger at that time in history. We really weren't allowed to take revenge. And so if the story had to put it in the hands of something else, something other than Cinderella, she couldn't poke her stepsister's eyes out. But the magic birds could. What do you think? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I think also it sort of wouldn't go along with this whole purity thing that she's had the whole time. That Right, exactly. She couldn't bring herself to do it. And yeah, in many ways, they act as all the things that she would want to do, but just can't. You know, whether it's fulfilling the task of getting the lentils out of the ashes or coming up with these fancy gowns for the balls or in in the end, ultimately packing out the eyes. It's all these things that she would do herself if she could. But she cannot fight her own battles because she is an image of feminine perfection. And at that time, that Mm -hmm. meant that you didn't fight. Yeah. I just had in in my mind, you're probably not familiar with this, but there's a skit or show called Key and Peel that do various skits. And one that was very popular was one of the hosts would pretend to be President Barack Obama's angry side. Oh, you know what? You showed it to me, actually. That was it was hilarious. The anger translator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. taking these very calmly said words and turning them into <laughs> to the actual rage that we all think that Obama must have been containing at certain points in his uh-huh. presidency. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all what happens to the person who is being envied, but what does this tell us happens to the ones who are envious of that person? Yeah, so when we dehumanize someone else, when we turn a human being into an abstraction or an object, we kind of unknowingly do the same thing to ourselves. And we can see this pattern showing up in Cinderella's stepmother's demand that her daughters mutilate their own feet and their absolute willingness to obey, right? They will cut off parts of their body in order to get something that is rightfully Cinderella's. That is truly treating yourself as an object. I don't even care if my body is whole, only if it fulfills my purpose. They're not people to themselves any more than Cinderella is. They're just objects. Hmm. And that's also tragic. So this failure to consciously experience our own envy, 
it's not only dangerous to the person that we envy, but it's really dangerous to our own sense of self. So Cinderella, as the one who is envied, becomes a human garbage can. She becomes a receptacle for all of the negative qualities and fears of her step family. So they fear being ugly or unloved or impoverished. And they make sure that Cinderella is all of these things. She's ugly because she's so dirty. She's unloved because they don't love her. And she's impoverished because they've made her so. We can see similar processes in how racism, sexism, and homophobia function. I thought maybe I'd give some example um, in terms of homophobia, transphobia, and anti-Semitism. So with homophobia, I think you can argue that one of the things that patriarchy teaches men to fear is to be being effeminate. Mm -hmm. That that is to be weak, to be emotional, to be vulnerable. So all of those things have classically been projected onto gay men, that they are effeminate, that they are more emotional, that they are more vulnerable. I mean, they've certainly been more vulnerable because society has made sure they were more vulnerable. With anti-Semitism, a little bit of what I talked about before, it was perceived as a sin or a moral failing to want money and so Jews were put into this position of not being able to earn a living. And then this desire for money was projected onto them. And they were right. seen as being greedy or grubby because the only way they could eat was to work with money because they, again, couldn't own land or couldn't have a skilled trade. So, again, we can see how all of the things that we may fear that we are, all the negative things that we fear that we are, we can get rid of those fears by projecting them on someone who is envied and then destroying that person or that group of people. And it's as if we've gotten rid of those qualities from ourselves. And it follows, I think, very particular patterns as well in terms of what's accepted you'll find people are much more upset about the prospect of trans women than trans men because there is this expectation of, okay, yeah, people want to be masculine, sure, whatever. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to be powerful right. and strong and all of that? Right. But then the thought that any man would express femininity or assigned male at birth would express femininity and want to change the other direction, that is really abhorrent. And people will say, oh, you can't be in our bathrooms, can't this, that, and the other, because it's this much more unaccepted thing. And kind of going with the, the homophobia as well, if you are on certain explicit sites, uh, you will find that Never on any front page will there be homosexual content, at least mm. when it comes to males. There may be two women, but mm -hmm. never on a front page will there be any of that explicit content. 
with two men, you kind of need to seek that out if that's something that you're looking for. And it kind of says people expect that those sites have mostly male viewership. I'm sure the stats probably show that. But knowing that, they're not going to throw this kind of content that they do have, but they're not going to throw it on the front page as promoting it because they'll have people search it out. It is othered. And, and, and so, I mean, it's obviously true that cisgender men, even in patriarchy, have emotion, have vulnerability, have quote-unquote feminine qualities. But the more patriarchal the system, the more negatively those qualities are seen. And so it's more important to project that femininity, that emotionality, that softness onto the other, onto trans women or onto gay men, and to d destroy it because those qualities are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, Cinderella really gives us the pattern of this. If one of the things that fairy tales does for us is they show us these archetypal patterns of human behavior, we can really see this pattern that we are still living in and still struggling with. We can see it in its most stripped down clear outlines in a fairy tale. So then who can end up fixing a relationship like this? You've got so many issues between the envious and the envied. How do we fix that? So Yulinov argues that the one who is envied cannot fix it. They will run headfirst into a wall with no way around it, no way over it, no way under it. Anybody who is experiencing envy in its fullest form, of course, in fairy tales, everything is in its most extreme form, want to literally destroy the envied. They want to blot them out. So the person who's envious wants to annihilate the envied. Cinderella and anybody else who is envied must accept that there is a wall and stop trying to get around it. If you are in the experience of being envied, stop trying to fix the person who is envying you. Stop trying to change them. Often, if we are envied, we fall into a victim stance. We may take blame for things we did not do, or we will take responsibility for someone else's projections. So one of Yulinov's analysands in her book said that she actually felt guilty for being alive because her existence, her very existence, produced such misery and envy in her sibling. Another thing, another risk is that we might retaliate and become persecutors ourselves, either to the person who's envying us or to somebody else who's maybe lower down on the power ladder. Yep. I think we can see that a lot in how people who are abused younger may end up becoming abusers themselves. Or being cruel to younger siblings. Mm-hmm. 
And I think many times, actually, someone envies you for something, you may envy them for something right back. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, definitely true. So in the fairy tale, the only thing that's going to help Cinderella is to stop trying to please her stepmother. She has to stop trying to do these ridiculous, pointless tasks because it's never going to work. And she has to go to the birds, who I would argue symbolize her mysterious, unconscious inner resources for help to get to the ball. She's never going to please her stepmother. And I think that's why we see this repetition. It shows us trying to please her, trying to do it perfectly doesn't work. We have to go elsewhere. We have to get help either from inside ourselves or from some other unknown resource. The problem with this, and it sounds really good to do that, right, is, of course, that ignoring the person who's envying us doesn't really work either. The envier is still going to try to annihilate the envied. And as we can see with bullies, may even up the ante, might escalate the aggression, the cruelty when they are ignored. So an, another tactic that people who are envied sometimes take is to try to become it's fully self-sufficient. You know, I am a rock. I am an island. I don't need anyone from anyone because if I do, I run the risk of being attacked. Yeah, I will be completely self-sufficient. And of course, there's a price for this too, right? It, that, that just leads to horrible loneliness, which is a feeling. This, this loneliness leads off the pages of the Cinderella fairy tale. As we imagine her going to her motherless bed of ashes at night, I can just feel the isolation the loneliness of this child. And it is kind of back to our theme from last episode, her genuine grief and her ability to really experience her loneliness is what finally allows Cinderella to find connection with the prince. Yeah, but I mean, even, even then, she's hesitant to let him really know her. He can only see her when she's in this most beautiful, perfect form when she's at the ball in these fancy gowns. And eventually, he really wants to get to know her, to understand where she runs off to at midnight and doesn't want just this, this dance and everything, and so sets that trap. Yeah. He wants to really relate to her, which is in the fairy tale symbolized by marriage, a real relationship, and not to just have a brief dance with this beautiful, youthful aspect of her. And he does pursue her. He finally finds her dirty, in rags, and yet he still wants her. I think this fear of being seen is something that I see in clients and in, in Alisanne's who've had a lot of trauma in their life. I think that shell, that self-sufficiency is one word for it, but that shell that people build around themselves 
when it's too dangerous to connect to others, it hurts to open up that shell. And it can even hurt to be seen and to be loved. Even being seen and loved, which we all want so much, if we've really had to defend ourselves against terrible persecution from family, from society, even getting what we want and need is painful. And I think that's why Cinderella runs away and runs away and runs away. Mm. And it is the prince's really amazing persistence that somehow allows Cinderella to have a real relationship, a real mutual relationship where all of her is in the relationship. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's just easier to keep up your defense mechanisms that you imagine, well, if they know the real me, they wouldn't love me. So I have to put up these barriers so that at least they'll love this persona that I'm putting up. And they can love that, but I'll lose them if they got to know this other side of me. But yeah, that's not a full love. Yeah, the problem with that is that we know that they're not loving our truest selves. And so it just feels empty. And so people who are really living in this walled-off state, everything feels kind of empty. You know, they might be going through the motions. They might look like they're having relationships. But none of it feels real until we really let the other see us in our rags and cinders. Yeah, we may keep them. They may not abandon us, but we don't really have anything. We just have ashes. Hmm. It's a tough spot to be in. And it's an extremely difficult and slow process to move out of it for most people. I think it's also worth flipping the coin a little bit. We've talked a lot about being envied. But quite often we are the envious. We, we are the ones envying others. I don't know what you're talking about, Adina. I've never envied someone in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, me either. But I'm sure somebody somewhere <laughs> has known that experience. So, yeah, sometimes we're the evil stepmother and stepsisters. We're the enviers. We are projecting our goodness, but also our evil onto someone else. We're making someone else carry our mistakes, our failures, our nastiness. And at the same time, feeling resentful of them for doing all of that. I think one of the hardest things to kind of navigate responses and, and well wishes and everything is when someone you care about is succeeding when you're not. Oh, yeah. You know, God forbid you ever apply to the same position as someone and they get it and you don't. I know couples who are in the same profession and they'll have rules about not applying to mm. the same position because 
you don't want one person to get it and the other not. And how does that then feel? Because it sets up such a toxic dynamic if that would happen. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great example. When we're not feeling successful at whatever it is, how hard it is to be genuinely joyful for somebody who is. I personally would say don't even try. (laughs) Because I think that is actually part of the learning from this fairy tale. Be conscious and aware of your own envy. Rather than trying to fake joy for them, really sit with I'm envious. What is it that I am projecting onto this person? I think that's a much more fruitful stance than trying to be joyful for somebody when you're not, or even just trying to pretend, when you, you know, which I think we all do. Depending on the position, you don't always get the choice, right? Someone wants to share their good news with you. And uh, in that moment, you have to express your support. Absolutely. But at least be conscious that you're pretending. And again, okay, I'm feeling envious. What's going on? You know, again, that turning inward mm-hmm. is a really important step. So if we go back to Cinderella, Cinderella doesn't really seem to offer a solution to what do you do with your own envy. It ends with birds pecking out the stepsister's eyes. I personally am not particularly eager to allow anything (laughs) to peck out my eyes. But I would say that it may be that the suffering that is endured by the stepsisters is actually a necessary first step for them to move beyond this dehumanizing stance of envy. So if we are the enviers, we have to withdraw our projections. We have to own our own weakness, our own meanness, our own ugliness, and also our own capacity for success, all of it. We have to own all of that. We have to say, that person may have it, but I have it too. And when we do this, the initial experience of it is going to feel terribly painful and really be full of loss. I am losing this image of my own perfectness. Whatever kind of perfectness it may be, we're not as strong as we thought we were. We're not as wise as we thought we were. Perhaps we're not as compassionate as we thought we were. We are sometimes the persecutors and not the innocent victims that we've experienced ourselves to be. So I know that's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to ask people to suffer that. It's always challenging to look inward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think that's what Jungian psychology calls on us to do over and over and over again. For Jungians that look inward into our own depths is where new wisdom is. It's where healing is. And sometimes it's where cleaning out the dirty stable is, right? Sometimes (laughs) we have to shovel the crap before we can have anything lovely move into our stable. And that is this withdrawing the negative projections. 
right? When we withdraw the negative projections, we can come to terms with ourselves. We can experience over time an honest humbleness that doesn't feel like humiliation anymore. At first, it's going to feel like humiliation, but over time, it's just sort of a right-sizing of ourselves. This is who I am. But like the stepsisters, it's going to begin in pain. Mm. We don't really get to follow the stepsisters to the end of their story, but I guess as an analyst, I hope that perhaps they are able to assimilate their pain and come into a greater wholeness. If they can relinquish their envy of Cinderella and we can relinquish ours, they and we can become more human. They and we will no longer treat others and ourselves as objects. We will no longer symbolically maim ourselves in order to achieve certain things. Mm. That's my wished for ending for this fairy tale. The ending where they do all this and they happen upon Rapunzel's cabin in the desert and her tears heal their <laughs> eyes. Exactly. <laughs> They're no longer blind. Exactly. Exactly. And they live happily ever after. <laughs> we all can wish for that ending for people to begin to reflect inward and become a better person for it, I think. There is no one who can say that they would not benefit from some self-reflection and trying to better themselves. And I would say that, and obviously I'm an analyst, so I believe this, that it's often a process that's better done with somebody else. Mm. Because it's often easier to come to see our own weakness and brokenness with compassion when there's somebody else in the room who is seeing it with compassion. And so I think that that's, that's a really helpful process for a lot of people. A hopeful ending following less hopeful description <laughs> of ending in, in Cinderella. I like that. Well, that is going to conclude our coverage of Cinderella. I don't know that we've decided yet what our next story will be. Did you have a sense? No, we... We, we have lots of lots of possibilities, right? There's Hansel and Gretel. There's Red Riding Hood. So many possibilities. You and I will talk and we'll let everybody know. Right? <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. And that wraps things up for this episode. Our intro outro music is a sample of Spring Movement One Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash yogianeverafter. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next month, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Mm -hmm.